Please open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, this is the next step in our walk through the book of Daniel in a series that we've entitled Between Two Kingdoms. In 1860, there was a notable advance in human communication, a notable advance in the ability, at least for humans, to communicate over long distances. Let's see if any of our school kids in here know what that advance in communication was in 1860. Anyone out there? What notable new aspect of human communication happened in 1860 that, that advanced how humans can communicate over over large uh, span of territory? Anybody? Right here, Rowan. The telegraph. That's close, but not quite. The telegraph was a couple of years later. Vera? The phone. No, that was several years later. 1860. Any ideas? It actually went out of business because of the telegraph. It was the Pony Express. In 1860, the Pony Express began, and that was a, a notable step forward. People could correspond a whole lot quicker from, from across the country due to the Pony Express simply being able to, this, this new system put in place so that, so that mail could get from one place to the other more quickly. But in two years, the Pony Express died because something else came on the scene called the telegraph. And then you could just, with a few taps and beeps, was using Morse code, get a message from a wired message through electronic wires from one end of the country to the other, actually even across the oceans. And then, of course, that was eventually displaced, Vera, by the phone. And people could talk over those electronic wires over across the country or even across the, the oceans. And then the technology of communication continued to advance and eventually there was ability to communicate over airwaves and we had radio and, and then we'd have television and eventually that would lead to even satellite communications and well, here we are today and we hold in our hands these little bitty devices and I meant to bring one up here and I forgot but these little bitty devices, these little smartphones that enable us to communicate in ways that people couldn't have imagined. The Pony Express was only 157 years ago. People couldn't have imagined being able to communicate around the globe like we can today, just in my lifetime. And I know some of you kids out there are looking at me and say, yeah, that's been a while, but really it hasn't. Even in my lifetime, communication has changed remarkably. When I was a kid in Ecuador, we lived in Ecuador, and when we were down there, it was too expensive to make phone calls. We didn't have email or anything like that, so we only got to talk to our family back in the States periodically, and we usually used ham radio to do it. If you ever communicated over ham radio, it's just clunky and, and not very easy. But now, you can send a text message, a Snapchat, uh, whatever, FaceTime, whatever, across the globe, anywhere on the planet practically, to practically any person on the planet because of the advances that we have in communication. But there's one method and means of communication that is even more glorious than that. And, and, and by the way, your smartphones, it is an act of God's common grace for you to be able to have those things. But something even more gracious that God has given us that has existed from the beginning is prayer. God has graciously allowed his people to communicate with him through prayer. What a much greater span that is. I mean, we talk about communicating across the country. We, we can now, because of these wonderful devices, we can instantly talk to Noah, even this even last night, across, across the United States instantly. And he can send us video and all that kind of stuff. But how much more the gulf between man and God 
Yet God has spanned that gulf through prayer. He allows his people to talk to him, to communicate with him. It's a much more glorious and gracious thing, a much more glorious and gracious means and method of communication. And in Daniel chapter 9, we have one of the most magnificent prayers ever recorded in Scripture. Daniel chapter 9 isn't normally known for Daniel's prayer, which is what we're going to focus on this morning. Daniel chapter 9 is usually known for the last few verses of Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. We're not going to get to that today. If you came here hoping today to settle all the debate about what Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27 mean, I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait till next week. And by the way, I don't even think it'll be settled next week. That's a very difficult passage, very controversial passage, very debatable passage. But leading up to that, we have this text today, Daniel 9, verses 1 through 19, which is this glorious prayer recorded for us where Daniel comes before the Lord in deep confession, deep repentance of sin. And we have this prayer, and it is actually this prayer that God responds to and therefore gives Daniel a prophetic word at the end of the chapter. So we need to understand, we need to look at this prayer first. So please stand, if you would, as we begin to read Daniel chapter 9, verses 1. And we're actually going to read past verse 19. I'm going to read all the way to verse 23 so we can begin to see God's response to Daniel's prayer. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to read 1 through 23. And we stand in the honor of reading God's infallible, inerrant, and all-sufficient word. Verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who is made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belong open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers, who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities 
and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, thank you for this prayer that is recorded for us. Thank you that we can come and even pray right now and speak to you directly and come before that throne of grace with confidence. And so, Lord, we come recognizing your glory and your sovereignty, your majesty, and we ask that you would look upon us with favor today. Because of the work of Jesus Christ and the indwelling presence of your spirit, we ask, Lord, that you give us ears to hear the words that you're speaking to us today. And Lord, give me a mouth to speak them accurately. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. John Owen, the great preacher and theologian, once said this, What an individual is in secret, on his knees before God, that he is, and no more. What an individual is in secret, on his knees before God, that he is, and no more. And he's right. Prayer reveals a lot about who we really are. We may on the surface in our public persona be one thing, but in the privacy of the prayer closet be another. In private prayer, when no one is looking, that's the real us. Now, if that is true, what does it say about who we really are if our prayer life is marginal or non-existent? The truth is that prayer reveals two things. Number one, it reveals what we really think about God. And number two, what we really think about ourselves. And Daniel's true heart is on display in this passage today. 
where we see what he really thinks about his God and what he really thinks about himself. Now we've seen in the book of Daniel that Daniel is a man of remarkable prayer. As a young man, he was a man of prayer. In chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, you remember the, the crisis that came. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. No one could tell him what the dream was or interpret the dream. So he ordered to have all the wise men uh, killed. Daniel hears about it. He goes to the captain of the guard. He pleads that, that they give him some time. And then he goes with his, with his friends. And what do they do? They go and they implore before the Lord. They pray. So as a young man, he was a man of prayer. And then we saw as an old man in his 80s in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, that he was a man of prayer. Matter of fact, that's what got him in trouble. That's what got him thrown to the lion's den, was that he was a man of consistent prayer. Three times a day, praying toward Jerusalem. Now it's interesting that the events of today's passage, chapter 9, are happened during the time of chapter 6. Remember, chapters 1 through 6 are this chronological telling of the events of Daniel's life. And then what we have in chapter 7 and beyond are these apocalyptic visions and stuff that God gives Daniel. And, and that part is not necessarily chronological. So at the very beginning of today's passage, we read this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. So it's telling us when this is happening. And if you look back at chapter 6, it's the exact same time that that was happening. So it very well may be that the prayers that got Daniel in trouble in chapter 6 were prayers like this one right here. It's re recorded for us in chapter 9. So I want today to us to look at this prayer, this magnificent prayer of confession, and we'll get a peek into Daniel's prayer life, and I'm praying that that will motivate us to be better prayers ourselves. So I've got a few different points this morning, and here's the first one. I want you to notice that Daniel's prayer is stimulated and saturated with the authoritative word of God. It's stimulated, and then it's saturated with the word of God. Verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books, or the scrolls, I perceived in the books the number of the years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And then look at verse 3. Then, then, after he's been meditating and studying God's word, then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And that fasting and sackcloth and ashes just gives us an indication of this is going to be a, a prayer of deep, deep confession. But the main thing I want you to notice in this little prelude to the prayer is that Daniel's prayer is fueled by, stimulated by, the Word of God. He's studying it. He's meditating upon it. Specifically, he's in the book of Jeremiah. Now, a little parenthetical note here about the nature of God's Word, God's inspired Word. Jeremiah and Daniel were contemporaries. Their ministries actually overlapped a little bit. Jeremiah was prophesying in Jerusalem when that first wave of exiles were taken by Nebuchadnezzar. So it very well may be that Daniel, as a young boy, heard Jeremiah's prophetic word echoing through the deaf streets of Jerusalem. We don't know. But their ministries did overlap a little bit. The point I'm trying to make is this. Within a generation, just within a generation, the words spoken from the mouth of Jeremiah were already recognized by God's people as Scripture. They were recognized as the authoritative word of God. They were seen to be true words from God, not just, not just ramblings of this man named Jeremiah. 
We see something similar in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. Peter, who is a contemporary of Paul, he speaks of Paul's letters as Scripture. So he recognizes the things that Paul is writing and saying are not just, not just the, the thoughts of a man. They are the Word of God. And here's my point, and this is important, because we need to understand that throughout redemptive history, God's people have not just arbitrarily decided what is or what isn't God's Word. That's not how it works. Instead, God's people have recognized what is God's Word. God's people don't go around deciding, oh, this is Scripture and this is not. God's people who truly have the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit bears witness to the Spirit-inspired words, recognize what truly is Scripture. And so as the canon was completed and, and brought before us, it wasn't, don't, don't buy into these theories that it was just some sort of, that Constantine just came up with the ideas of he wanted to have this canon and they just picked whatever books they wanted to pick. No, that's not what the historical testimony shows us. God's people have always been able to recognize God's word. So Daniel's prayer here is stimulated by the word of God spoken through Jeremiah. Now why does, why does Jeremiah in particular, why does that, that stimulate his prayer. Well, let, let me just read for you real quick Jeremiah 25, verses 11 through 12. Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12. And this is Jeremiah <clears throat> prophesying about the upcoming exile. It says this, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon, listen to this, 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. So here's the historical setting that we just saw in verse 1. Babylon has fallen. Babylon, this is, this is happening shortly after Daniel went in and read that handwriting on the wall for King Belshazzar. And so Babylon has now fallen. Cyrus has now come onto the scene. He is the king. Remember I argued earlier that I believe Cyrus and Darius are the same person? Now, so this is the historical setting. Babylon has fallen. And Daniel's a man of the word. He knows that Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45 predict that a king named Cyrus was going to be the one that God would use as an instrument to take God's people back to Jerusalem. So Daniel, knowing these promises of God, he goes to God's word and he goes to Jeremiah and sees this promise of the 70 years and it leads him to prayer. Now, now let me just real quick comment on the 70 years. People just do all kinds of of gymnastics trying to figure out exactly what the 70 years is. What we know is that this period was about 70 years, 67 or something like that. Don't get caught up with the exactness here. The, the scriptures oftentimes use rounded off numbers for reasons because the, the, the numbers have symbolic meaning. So back earlier in, in chapter, um, oh, what was it, chapter 7, no, chapter 8, when I was preaching that chapter, and we talked about the 2300 days uh, where, where uh, Antiochus Epiphanes would, would just pour out his, his anger upon the Jewish people. That was about six, six years or whatever. We don't have to worry about the exactness of the number. The 70 here is symbolic of completion. There is a complete number of days that God has for his people. And sure enough, it comes out to right around 70 years. But it's, it's the completion that's the, po that's the point here. Matter of fact, there's other passages in Scripture, and it's a, it's a fascinating study. We don't have time to do it today. Where God predicted many times in his word, in the law, that his people would forsake him and that the land would vomit them out and that the land would need a period of Sabbath. The land would need a period of rest. And so all we have here is the completion of the Sabbaths that the land needed before the people could come back. But here's the, here's the important point that I want to really mention now and I want to touch much more on later. And that is this, that the rock-solid promises of God 
found in Jeremiah, found in Isaiah, and in other places. These do not lead Daniel to some sort of passive fatalism. Oh, great. I'm glad God's going to bring us back after 70 years. I'm glad. Great. Great. I guess I'll just sit back and wait and watch it happen. That's not how it works. When you're saturated with the promises of God, it doesn't lead you to a fatal, uh, sort of a passive fatalism. It leads you to active prayer. And so what Daniel does when he knows and sees the promises of God, he goes immediately into prayer. And, and God's promises to stimulate us to prayer as well. Let me just give, there's a lot of examples we can give. I had a lot more in my text and I had to begin to try to cut some stuff out. But let me just give you an example. Philippians 1.6. How many of you know the promise found in Philippians 1.6? If someone has that memorized, just, just say it. Philippians 1.6. Great. And if you couldn't hear what Chris said, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now listen to that. That is a promise. God is going to complete what he began. That does not lead us to a, to a passive fatalism. Great. Well, God's going to do this. Then phew, I can just sit back. I mean, God's going to make it happen. No. What happens when we read a promise like that? I don't know what happens to you, but here's what happens to me. I go to, go to my heavenly Father and I say, Father, you are the keeper of promises. So, Lord, I am trusting. I believe that you're going to do and work in me. So change me. Convict me of my sin. Grow me. Sanctify me. Make me more like Jesus. Please, Lord. And you know what? That promise from Philippians 1.6 gives confidence and surety to my prayer. You see, the promises of God drive us into prayer. They don't drive us into some sort of fatalism. There's many more uh, illustrations we could give from different promises in the scriptures. But my point this morning is simply is that the word of God must be the stimulus for our prayers. George Mueller, many of you guys know his story of his amazing prayer life. He's the one who, who had all those orphanages in England back in the 1800s. And he, he had a remarkable prayer life where he would just pray for things and God would just provide in remarkable ways. But he speaks of the moment his life changed, his prayer life changed. And his prayer life changed when he got his, uh, his time with the Lord in the right order. And what do I mean by that? Well, he talks about how he used to go to the Lord in prayer, and that's how he'd start off his day. He'd pray 30 minutes, pray an hour, and he'd pray. And then he would spend some time in the Word. And he said oftentimes his prayers were filled with distractions and different things where he wasn't really focused. And then he changed it. He decided he would start to go to God's Word first. And what he found was that when he went to God's Word first, it, it nourished and empowered his prayer life. So he'd spend time in God's Word, and then he would begin to pray. And that's why we do men's prayer meeting the way we do men's prayer meeting. The Word of God must be our stimulus for our prayers. But Daniel's prayer here isn't just stimulated by the Word of God. It's also saturated with the Word of God. And we'll see this as we progress through the sermon today. But if you have a cross-reference Bible, and you look at the footnotes or the marginal notes, you'll notice there are quotes and allusions to all, all sorts of different passages from the Old Testament in Daniel's prayer. For example, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 46 through 52. I mentioned this passage of Scripture back in Daniel chapter 6. And this is the passage where Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, he is praying to God and he is anticipating, as he's praying to God, that, his, that everyone will sin, that the people of God will sin, and one day they will be vomited out of the land, just as the law said that would happen. And in anticipation of that, he's praying to the Lord and he's asking God when that happens and if your people turn from their sins and if your people face Jerusalem and pray to this holy hill of yours, hear them, forgive them of their sins. And so that's what, that, that is informing, that, that word of God is informing Daniel's prayer. You can hear a lot of echoes of 1 Kings 8 
in Daniel's prayer. And there are many other ways that Daniel's prayer is, is saturated with the Word of God. Friends, have you ever been in a situation where you are so overwhelmed, you just don't know what to say in prayer? I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I've been there. Where you're just so overwhelmed, you don't even know what to say. Friends, we are not left without content for our prayers. Pray God's word back to him. The Psalms are particularly helpful for this. And when we pray God's word back to him, we know that we are praying prayers that God hears and answers. Why? Why do I say that? Because 1 John 5, 14 teaches us that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And what is God's word? It is his revealed will. So take that into mind when you read Jesus' words in John 15, 7. Jesus says, if you abide in me, and what? My words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. When you don't have words to pray, pray God's word. When you don't have words to pray, simply pray God's word. Now, there are three basic elements to Daniel's prayer here as we're about to get into it. There's adoration, there's confession, and then there's supplication where he, 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 has, he pleads for mercy. And it's the adoration that I have in mind in our next point. Daniel's prayer is moved and motivated by the righteous character of God. Daniel's prayer is moved and motivated by the righteous character of God. Daniel doesn't just jump into his prayer with his list of petitions. He doesn't just begin with broken-hearted confession. No, he begins with zealous adoration. Verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God. Now, that word awesome is so watered down in our vernacular today that we really don't catch what it means. It means terrifying, fearful. Oh, great and terrifying God. Do you see the great reverence and awe with which Daniel approaches God? What reverence, what awe in his prayer life? Oh, how much we can learn from Daniel. We are so trite, we are so cliched in the way we come to God. Like he's our golfing buddy. Hey God, dear God. You may say, well, wait a second, Steve. Doesn't, doesn't Jesus teach us in the New Testament that we are to approach God as our Father? Doesn't he say Abba, which, which is like saying Daddy? You're right. But look at what Jesus says in that, in that instruction, Matthew 6, verse 9. When he tells us to pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed. His name is to be held high. His name is to be honored. We are thus to come to him with reverence and awe. Why? Because of who he is. As Daniel goes on to articulate in the rest of verse 4, it says this, Who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Daniel proclaims back to God God's faithfulness and love. He prays confidently because he knows his God is a covenant-keeping God whose promises never fall to the ground. God, by the very nature of who he is, cannot break his promises. In this prayer, Daniel is constantly referring to what God promised to do, and he knows that God is faithful to do it. Friends, praying, being a person of great faith in prayer, isn't so much about looking within ourselves to see how big of a request that we can muster up. Instead, faith is looking within the Word of God at the big promises that our covenant God has already made and taking hold of those. And we can pray confidently because 
His covenant love is unbreakable. It's steadfast love. It's that phrase, that steadfast love, whenever you see that, that's God's covenant love, hesed, in the Hebrew. Now, Daniel's adoration isn't limited to the beginning of the prayer. I think that's how we are sometimes, right? We, we kind of get the, the, the adoration out of the way. Oh, gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, and then we go into our list. La, 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 la. And Daniel doesn't do that. All throughout this prayer, you probably noticed when we read it, there's adoration mixed in. Let me just give you some examples here. Verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. Verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Second half of verse 14. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. Verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts. Second half of verse 18. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Daniel's prayer is moved and motivated by the righteous character of God, and that is adoration. But this prayer is also, quite obviously as we read it, a prayer of deep, deep confession. So my next point is simply this. Daniel's prayer admits and abhors the sins of the covenant people of God. Daniel's prayer admits and abhors the sins of the covenant people of God. Let's just walk through this prayer beginning at verse 5. And by the way, there's so much in this prayer, I could preach 30 sermons on it. So I'm going to walk through this, and we'll walk through this really, fairly quickly here in a minute. Verse 5. We have sinned. Now, I'm sure you've noticed. You noticed it when we read it before, and if you didn't listen closely then, I want you to listen closely now as we continue to read through it. But Daniel says, we and us, over and over again in this prayer. Daniel understands that as part of the people of God, he shares ownership of the corporate sin of the people of God. This is despite the fact that Daniel himself is a fairly upright man, a very upright man. Twice, Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 14 lists Daniel along with Noah and along with Job as men of exceptional righteousness. And by that, I'm not saying that Daniel was sinless. Matter of fact, we know Daniel did sin. Look at verse 20 real quick. This is at the end of his prayer, after he's done praying, he says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing what? My sin and the sin of my people, Israel. So Daniel had personal sin that needed confessing, but in this prayer, it's the corporate sin of Israel as a nation that has led to the calamity of the Jewish exile. But Daniel's not going to sit there and blame others. He's not going to go to the Lord and say, oh, these foolish people that I'm a part of, God, just, if you just deal with them... No. Daniel's going to own the sin of his people because Daniel knows that sin in the camp affects everybody. Friends, how much more we, the new covenant people of God, are affected by sin in the camp? Is the church not called a body? Are we not one in Christ? Then we must see that sin in one part of the body ripples through the whole body. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If I go to the doctor and I have cancer in my hand, I don't just go home and celebrate, well, I've got another hand. I'm worried because I don't want that cancer spreading through the whole body, so either there needs to be some sort of treatment that kills the cancer or the hand needs to be cut off. Because sin in the body affects the whole body. Friends, we must own our sin together if we are a body. 
Why on earth does this door he given so many instructions about, about warning each other of sin, confronting each other about sin? And as James 5:16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Because the sin in the body affects the whole body. Now notice that Daniel doesn't just admit the sin of his people. He abhors it. Look at verse 5. Look at how he describes sin. He says, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name. Six different ways Daniel has of describing sin. To our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land, all the people, all the people of all the different social strata shared the guilt. Verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Okay, so if the first six descriptions of sin were not enough, now we have treachery. How many of us in here see our sin as treachery. Oh, if we could only see the nastiness of our sin more thoroughly, we would love our Savior more intensely. Verse 8. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Now listen to the contrast, verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Now, I want you to listen as we continue to read through the prayer here. Listen to the focus on God's word. We've already seen it some in the prayer. Listen to the focus on God's word and how the failure to listen to God's word is actually the source of their sin. Verse 9, second half of verse 9. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. We have confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. Verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of our God. And how, do they, how should they have done that? Turning from our iniquities, that's repentance, and gaining insight by your truth, that is returning to his word. Verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity. By the way, that is kind of a softened word. It actually means evil. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the evil and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all, his, all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. Law, voice, writings, truth. Sin is birthed in the heart that refuses to hear the voice of God. And what we have in these verses here where, where he refers to the, the things written in the law of Moses that were going to come upon us, we have a reference to Deuteronomy 27 and Deuteronomy 28, which is a passage that contains the covenant curses, where God promises to bring evil, bring calamity, upon those who break covenant with him. And as a promise keeper, God keeps his promise, even the negative ones. 
Daniel sees the sin, he sees the rebellion, he knows the source of the rebellion, which was failure to listen to God's word, and he confesses his rebellion and his people's rebellion. And so we have seen adoration, we have seen confession, and now Daniel turns to supplication, and, when he, and he pleads for God's mercy upon his people. And in that, in Daniel's prayer, we see that it, Daniel appeals to and amplifies the glorious mercy of God. Appeals to and amplifies the, the, the glorious mercy of God. What do I mean by that, appeal to and amplify? Well, he, he's going to appeal to the character of God. God, by your steadfast love, forgive us. But he's also going to want that to be amplified. Forgive us not for our sake, but so that you might be glorified. And we'll see that as we go along here. Verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself. So God has glorified himself. As at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, so he's appealing to God's character now, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers Jerusalem and your holy people have become a byword among all those who are around us. A byword. What does that mean? Become a byword. Well, it, it simply means they've become a joke. They become an embarrassment. And, it, and it's not that Daniel is embarrassed for the people primarily. No, Daniel, just as Moses was in Exodus 22, 11 through 12, Daniel's concerned about God's reputation. We are the people who bear God's name. And that's what he's concerned about. Verse 17. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate, for your own sake, for your glory, Lord. This is a radically God-centered prayer. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. Why? So it says, for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. The reputation of God's name is at stake. And that's what's foremost in Daniel's heart as he prays. Can we say the same for us when we go to the Lord in prayer? Is God's glory, is God's namesake what's at the, at the center of our heart? When we're praying for God to fix a situation in our life, we're praying for God to intervene in someone's life, we're pray are we praying primarily because we just want to see that person better or we want to see our situation change? Or are we praying because we want God to be glorified in it? Is the glory of God at the center of our prayer life? Again, we have so much to learn from Daniel. If we pray and sincerely desire in that prayer for God's name, God's character to be magnified, to be glorified, then we know that God hears and answers that prayer. Why? Because God has an infinite zeal for his own glory. Ezekiel 36, 22. And I'm just going to read a portion of this. This is the, the famous passage in Ezekiel about the, the new covenant. And so he's talking about the new covenant. It's coming. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. But in the verses leading up to that, he says, why? And I can't read it all right now because we don't have time. But let me just read Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. 
the new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus, the new heart we have, the new spirit that's been put in us, that is primarily for God's glory, not ours. God is steadfastly committed to God. God is committed with explosive passion to the glory of his name and the truth of his reputation. And that is not selfish of God. Instead, it is right. For God to be God, he must magnify what is of most value, namely himself, or else he would be an idolater. And for God to be a God of love, he must draw our gaze to what is most valuable, namely himself. So for God to have a zeal for his own glory is not only right, it is also good. It is good for us. And so we pray wholeheartedly with the psalmist, Psalm 115.1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So friends, if we are sincerely concerned about the sin that infects God's people, then we should be concerned about God's reputation. So you see, confronting sin in the church is also about God's reputation. For we, the church, are called by God's name. And of course, as we think about God's name, so much comes to mind. His steadfast love, his mercy, and the thing that's been the drumbeat of this book is his sovereignty. So I want to bring us full circle now in Daniel's prayer. Full circle now. And here's my last point. Daniel's prayer recognizes and rouses the sovereign hand of God. I alluded to this earlier. Remember, Daniel has the promises of God in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. It's been told to him. So with rock-solid certainty, he knows that God is going to bring his people back. And that knowledge of God's sovereign purposes and plans, plans which cannot be thwarted, did not cause him to sit back and wait passively, but instead it motivated him to pray actively. Daniel knew what we should know, namely that part of God's sovereign design is to use prayer as a means to bring about his unbreakable decrees. We see that in the very, in one of the, one of the passages that surely Daniel was thinking about when he began this prayer, Jeremiah 29. Earlier I quoted from Jeremiah 25, so this is a different passage. But it's referring to the same thing. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Speaking about when God would bring the people back. He says this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. That is a, that is a rock solid certain promise. He's going to bring them back when the years are complete for Babylon. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Let me just say a quick word about Using scripture out of context right here. You knew it was coming. Okay, this verse is primarily about God's promise to his exiled people. That he would bring them back. That he keeps his promises. I have plans for you. It's, it's not a verse about college kids finding their major. Okay, the principles in here still apply to us as true because we are God's new covenant people of God. But be careful how we just take God's word and splash it into context that don't make any sense when you really read it how it was originally intended. Verse 12. Now, I want you to listen here. So, so God has said, I'm going to do this. When the years are complete, I'm bringing them back. Why? Because I have these great plans for you, to prosper you as my people. And by the way, this is also leading up to the new covenant, which is the, the ultimate fulfillment of all this, which is a whole other sermon. But I want you to see in Jeremiah 29 how that comes about. Listen, verse 12. 
Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. So in other words, God promised to bring his people back, and prayer was the means he was going to use to make it happen. The question is often asked, if God is absolutely sovereign over all things, then why pray? I think that's an absolutely foolish question. Why pray? Well, number one, he commands you to. That should be enough. But number two, prayer is part of the sovereign plan. And thus, prayer really does affect events. Prayer really does change things. It is not an understatement to say that Daniel's prayer here in Daniel chapter 9 changes the course of world history. This prayer that we just read. Charles Spurgeon said that prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. If you go to Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, you see this, this image of the, of the prayers of the saints being like incense rising before God, and it's caught up in this censer. And the angel takes the prayers of God's people, and then it says he adds fire, and then he casts that fire onto the earth, and then we bring, you see these judgments coming upon the earth. What is that telling us? In, in very uh, uh, picturesque language, God is saying that the saints of his people are the means he uses to bring about his decrees. And that's what we see in Daniel chapter 9. In today's text, we see the almighty sovereign king of the universe, a truth that's been hammered home in this book, responding to the prayer of a little 80-year-old man. And God responds, and we have that response recorded in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand speaking with me and saying, now listen to this, O oh, Daniel, I have come out to give you insight and understanding. Verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. When Daniel began to pray, a word went out. God responded. Because God's not sovereign? No. Because God has ordained the ends and the means. And the means here is this magnificent prayer of Daniel's. Oh, friends, do you see how confident that we should be in our prayer life? When we come before our God with adoration and confession and supplication, which in that prayer is fueled by and focused on the promises of God, that we can come with great confidence. And as a matter of fact, we can come with even more confidence, I believe, than Daniel could come. Why? Because we're on this side of the cross. God has actually already satisfied all the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 27 and 28 on Jesus Christ. He poured it out on his own son. So the, the covenant curses have been satisfied. There is now no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we've been given a new heart and a new spirit. And, the, and at that, when Jesus breathed his last, we read that the, the temple curtain was torn in two. The way to the throne of grace was opened. Jesus is our high priest. And beyond that, the Holy Spirit, we're told, is continually interceding for us with groans that are too deep for words. And Jesus himself is also interceding for us. And so our prayer life should be even more confident than Daniel's was. 
Does that mean we no longer need to worry about confession? No. 1 John 1, 9 teaches us that we still have sin that needs to be confessed. We still need to go to the Lord and ask forgiveness. Matter of fact, that Ezekiel 36 passage I referred to earlier, it talks about the new covenant. I want, I want to read a little bit for you that as we, a little bit of that for you as you get ready to close the sermon here. And the truth I'm trying to drive home is that actually being part of the new covenant people of God even leads us to deeper confession. Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Okay, that's the new birth. Now remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you. That's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Does that mean we'll never sin? No. Matter of fact, a few verses later in verse 31, it says this. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. You see, people who are part of the new covenant people of God actually hate their sin because the presence of the Holy Spirit, the grief that the Holy Spirit feels when we sin, makes our sin even much more evident to us. So Jesus himself says in the Lord's Prayer, he commands us to pray this way, Matthew 6, 12, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do you notice something about Jesus' prayer there? Forgive me, my debts, forgive us, us, the corporate people of God, forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Sounds a lot like Daniel, doesn't it? Believer, do you see how stunning God's means and method for cosmic communication is? But coming back to my illustration from the first, how does your prayer life compare to the amount of time you spend on that device right there. How, how, does, how does our prayer life compare to the amount of time that's consumed by these, these common grace gifts of communication that are such a part of our life? So let Daniel be a challenge to you, friends, and to myself as well, to be saturated with the Word of God and stimulated into deep prayer. An unbeliever here in this morning, I, you do not have that unfettered access to God like a believer has. So my call for you this morning is simply to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're about to take the Lord's Supper here. The believers in here are about to participate in the Lord's Supper. And this Lord's Supper represents what Christ has done for us. He has made a way to the Father because he shed his blood and he gave his body on that cross. And then he rose again. And so that all who are in him have been credited with his righteousness and all of our sins have been forgiven. So I call on you this morning. If you want to have that access to the Father like Daniel had, like so many in this room have, Repent and call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as we come to the table, Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts. Lord, this table doesn't, it, it, it pictures a lot of things. And one of the things it pictures is that we are part of the body together. This meal is a meal we take together. It represents our unity. And you warn us in your word not to partake of this, this supper in a lighthearted way. Matter of fact, the gravity of this meal is designed to root out sin. Sin in the body. So I pray that you do a work in all of our hearts. 
May we peek into the depths of our hearts now and confess our sin to you, Lord, before we partake of the table. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.